Hello everyone, this is Read Watch Play. I'm Cleo. I'm Justin. I'm James. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about the Hunger Games trilogy by Suzanne Collins. So um, we decided to go ahead and read all three books for this, not just looking at the first one. Uh, we have Mockingjay Part 2 coming out in theaters soon, so it's especially timely. Um, so basically, if you're not familiar with this incredibly famous franchise that everyone is obsessed with, it's about this um, kind of futuristic, dystopian world that takes it's in North America, basically, um, where there's a city called the Capital, and they're really well off, and then there's these 12 districts, and there are not nearly as well off. A lot of them are living in like really bad poverty, um, with 12 and 11 kind of being the worst off, with the higher up numbers being closer to capital and they're better fed and whatnot. And there, every year there's a game that's called the Hunger Games where kids get selected to kill each other in an arena that's specially designed um, to be deadly and different each year. It's a different terrain. Uh, there are game makers who is their sole job to find ways to drive these kids towards each other so that they'll be like more likely to kill each other in dramatic ways. And yeah, that's that's <laughs> the basic sub it, I guess, right? Yeah, that pretty much covers it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, at least that covers like the general overview you get out of the first book, I guess. Um, the The way that it exists is because of a rebellion so originally there was like a big civil war in this like country of panem and the people rose up against the capital and the government that existed there and the capital ended up winning what was apparently like a war of attrition it's there's not a lot of detail about how the civil war really played out uh but the capital ended up like bombing what once was district 13 into like nothing um and that was sort of the final act that won them the war, and then they subjugated the districts further than they had been previously, and and the Hunger Games were born. Yeah, and the idea is that President Snow, who's in the capital, he and kind of in charge of the whole thing, basically always says that the Hunger Games exist as a reminder of the rebellion and the generosity of the capital and how everything could just fall apart again, and how much power the capital has over all these districts. Right. Yeah, and um, the kind of the running implication throughout all of this is it's, it's stated very explicitly that this is set in North America. They reference um, actual real-world locations, the Appalachians, the Rocky Mountains, etc. Um, and it seems like the implication is that this isn't some sort of thing that would go, like, Pan Am isn't necessarily a stand-in for America. I think that it... It does seem to be implied that this is America sometime in the future. That right. The differentiation wasn't necessarily at the rebellion. That came, you know, that was even further before. But that this is indeed meant to be just strict, like, future from today. Yeah. What's interesting is that we have, like, no idea what's going on outside of North America. We don't know what's happening on any of the other continents or countries. Nope. Yeah, no, um, there's no reference to it at all, so it's completely up to our imagination. Right, some more books, Suzanne. Yeah, the European Hunger Games. Would it be funny if, like, 
everywhere else is totally fine. And they're just like, okay, well, America just totally fucks it. So we're going to leave them alone. Um, there seems to be no travel to or from this continent. For all we know, actually, nothing else exists outside Panem. But right. um, Maybe whatever created this like mildly post-apocalyptic dystopia also destroyed the rest of yeah. the world. And it's hinted that it's climate change. Oh, um, yeah, I guess. Yeah, it is. It's, it's not gone over in great detail, but I think it's in, it's in Catching Fire, I think, where she kind of just mentions that, uh, or maybe it's in Mockingjay, where she mentions that her ancestors had basically fucked up the planet and made it, and they obviously didn't care about what kind of world they left um, their descendants to. Right. Yeah, which is kind of interesting because it's generally these books don't really go into themes just a little bit. It's either very, very much or it's just not really touched on. So I it sort of makes that climate change element seem a bit off, whereas for a lot of the rest of it, it feels like you know, even things that come up in the later books, even if they haven't been explicit, explicitly mentioned earlier, it the stage feels set for them in a really appropriate way. Um, and I this probably makes more sense to get into later, but it the the themes are there. Like this is this is definitely not the kind of book that is just meant to be kind of you you come along for the ride, you read the story, there's a beginning, a middle, and end, you've got characters, they do things. This is if not allegorical, certainly meant to have have a meaning or a message behind it. And it's interesting because I feel that means this is certainly not the first YA dystopian novel there are many but this definitely kind of sparked a resurgence of that genre there's been a lot i mean i think the divergent series is very much probably inspired by this um the testing obviously very inspired by this um several others there's a lot of trilogies or um what's a four book thing uh quartet quartet yeah maybe sure yeah um sorry yeah (laughs) Bunch of books. Yeah, but it's definitely... A bushel, if you will. Yeah, um, a bushel. It's all a bushel. <laughs> but when I was... Uh, actually, when I was interning at Tor Books, a lot of what I read from the slush pile was dystopian stuff. Not not great dystopian <laughs> stuff, <laughs> but it's a huge theme, and it's, I think it's still going strong. It's not showing oh, yeah. any signs of really dying down, unlike, you know, the vampire stuff, which is kind of... You know, it's it's not as going quite as strongly as it was several years ago. Um, Just kind of a nice change. Yeah. I don't know. Vampires. I I don't I don't want to speak to what someone does or doesn't or should or shouldn't like, but I kind of like the idea that the the current hot thing in young adult fiction is really kind of gritty, depressing sci-fi. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is yeah, it's funny because Suzanne Collins always said that. Her inspiration, or the idea she for the for the book that she originally got was came to her when she was watching. She was like channel surfing, and on some channels it was the reality show, and on others it was coverage of I think the war in the Middle East. And she just kept flipping back and forth between them, like between oh, Carnage and these like chipper kind of reality shows. Um, and she got the idea to kind of combine the two and make the Hunger Games. She also may have seen or read our, our movie selection for this month of the book it was based on. But that's a conversation for, for She claims she didn't see Battle Royale or read Battle Royale, but 
We'll talk about that in our next episode. Um, um, speaking of influences, though, I mean, it it certainly seems less less direct. But the big first kind of young adult this kind of sci-fi that I personally remember reading, and maybe it's because it's kind of standard in schools, is is The Giver. Yeah, uh, never read it. Which also had a movie, which was not that great. I'm not great. Yeah. I didn't see it either. So I didn't read it. I remember everyone reading it back in the day, though, and. Yeah, I'm sure that must have been an influence here. Yeah, I think the kind of tricky thing is, you know, is it, why it varies from person to person, right? Yeah. I, mean, I, I read 1984 before I read The Giver. Uh, yeah. So, you know, when you read what is going gonna, is gonna to kind of differ. But certainly, I, I would imagine Orwell wasn't imagining 7th grade James Phillips when he <laughs> sat down to write that book. No, probably not. But Lois Lowry might have been. Um, yeah, I guess that's actually a good time to mention that our uh, remind you that our theme for this um, series of episodes is kids killing kids, which obviously sounds horrible and is horrible, but we chose this theme because there was actually a lot to talk about. A surprising amount. It was not that hard to pull three things together. And Hunger Games has just taken off. I mean, it's taken off the way that like Harry Potter almost kind of. Yeah, off. it's definitely it's very in that. Not on the same scale, but it's very, very similar. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I guess is kind of as good of a time to, as any to announce that um, we're actually doing something kind of different for for this this series and hopefully from here on in. Um, but so if you've been listening to our our mainstream for this podcast, where you're going to get read and watch and play, we're actually going to add one more episode to the mix this month where we actually get into this even more. Where we just talk about the three things that we did and the theme all as a whole, something to tie it all together and sort of put a cap on it at at the end of that series before before moving on into our next. And it's something we're really excited about. It's something that we're hoping to do for every series like this from here on in. Um, but so if you've been kind of enjoying our conversation this far, kind of pulling things together, um, do do stay tuned for that. So I have one question for both of you. Uh, team Gale or Team PETA? <laughs> really important question, obviously. Kids are killing kids and I want to know. Who do you want Cat to end up with? Right. That's just the most frustrating subplot. Yeah. I don't know. I can can we clone them into one person? You see, I read an article a while ago, like a long while ago, that was talking about how um, the author or the author of the article wished that it had, or that it would like just end with Katniss being in an open relationship with both of them. From what polyamory? Yeah, because it like because she likes. I mean, Gail's kind of the nurturing one to her, and that she's kind of the nurturing one to Peta, mm-hmm. and she kind of needs both of those dynamics in a relationship in order to function. Right. Um, and so the author of the article is just saying that it was it would be silly. I don't know. I guess that would be kind of controversial in a okay. YA in a YA series. Just a tad. I guess. I'll say this, rather than saying what I what I would have preferred, because I think saying my ideal ending is being sort of a spoiler that it doesn't happen, um, but I, I have something along those lines where I, I have something in mind and I wish that it had gone in that direction, but it didn't. Mm-hmm. But actually, as a, general, as a general rule, that is my feeling about the whole series. I... You wish it had gone. You wish everything had gone a different way, and it didn't. I have a very. <laughs> I had a. I really like the series as a whole, thematic. I like what she gets into. I like where she goes. I like the exploration of these ideas and a really kind of 
hard, not compromising look at a lot of the things that she brings up, and I really, really like that, and I like that she went those places. Um, I'm going to hold off on talking about what those places are for, for this first segment, but I like all of that a lot. But after reading the first book and taking kind of the world that had been established, I think that getting at those themes happens at the expense of the narrative. I think that I become way less interested in the series as it progresses. I think that there's a few peaks in the second book, and after that it's really just downhill as far as my interest in what's going on goes. And there were some very explicit things that I remember imagining in the first one about what could happen. And I don't think I was disappointed that it wasn't exactly like I imagined, but that there was a lot of potential there, and I don't think it's fulfilled just from a like a purely being engaged with the narrative standpoint. I know that's all really super vague, but it's, it's a harder <laughs> thing to touch on. Again, you can do the same thing by saying, like, oh, yeah, I wish this had happened, but it really kind of tells you it doesn't. Yeah. Um, it's one thing if we were just talking about one book, but as far as talking about you know, the entire events of the second book, that kind of ruins the first. Yeah, I think that's actually why Catching Fire is my favorite of the trilogy, is because there's all this sort of sweeping thematic setup for where the you know story can go and what can be happening, and then the payoffs. I, I guess we're coming from the same point here. It's just that like the payoffs, not necessarily weren't what I expected, but just weren't as satisfying as I ultimately expected. It's interesting because I'm trying to think of which of the three books I would say is my favorite. Maybe Catching Fire, but I think the specific reason for that is that in the first book even though there is talk of like who the other tributes are and stuff, you don't really get to see a whole lot of them or know anything about them, including their names. Like, you don't even find out Kato's name until well into the second half of the book. Yeah. You just know him as like, oh, the scary dude from District 2. Yeah. Um, whereas in Catching Fire, the other tributes are a much more important part of the story. Yeah. And actually, for the record, I, I do agree that Catching Fire is, I think, I think my, my favorite and arguably the best. But yeah, and I think it's for a lot of the reasons that you bring up. It's everyone feels more fleshed out, the world has been built, so you've got something to explore there as opposed to being introduced. I, I think that you're right. That one is definitely the one that feels the most the most together and has, I think, the highest like emotional highs, which are arguably also the lowest emotional lows. You know, it that's the thing that got me. It was there are more instances that are just that real kind of gut wrenching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to the level where it wasn't beating you over the head constantly yeah. so that you kind of became numb to it. Yeah. It was, yeah, it made, the lows would affect you pretty strongly still because they were interspersed well enough. Yeah. Um, and you came to really care about other characters other than just Katniss. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, character-wise, who are your, how do you feel about the cast as a whole and like, who are your favorites or least favorites? Just give me more Hamish. I love Hamish. So. <laughs> Oh, Cinna. Cinna is one of those. I mean, I love, like, I love Cinna. There's just so little Cinna. Yeah. I wish there was more Cinna. I want a Cinna prequel, and I want a Hamish prequel. <laughs> like, there's just not, there's not enough Cinna for me to love. He's a very important character, but it's not, he's not a character that I could get attached to as much. I mean, I understand why people do, and I definitely feel the same things, just not as strongly, I guess. That's fair. Um, but there just wasn't enough for me to get invested. I almost felt like there not being that much was part of it. I could see that. You know, you have that sense that he's he's very pure. He's very smart. You never... I'll say this. I, I was sitting in a music class at one point, and I remember hearing some guys talking, and you're just sitting in the basement of the Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago, 
and these two guys like kind of arguing in the other room um, about the sex whistles. And the one guy made the argument, it's like, oh yeah, you know, it's like, but they're perfect. You know, they're there's everything about it is perfect. And the other guy says, well, yeah, it's because they never had time to suck, you know, and that they they didn't have that long enough of a career. And I almost feel like that's what happened with Sina. Like Sina doesn't have time to get grading. He just never gets frustrating. Right. He just kind of comes in these brief moments and he's always perfect and never overstays his welcome. Yeah. Which is kind of hard to say because it's not like I feel like other characters do overstay their welcome, but I almost wonder if that's that's part of his appeal for me. I feel like Gale overstays his welcome sometimes. Gale is overstays his welcome. <laughs> I guess that that's also right. answers the question for me of Team Gale or Team Peta. I just don't like either of them. I know, yeah, yeah I feel that. Thing, I'm right? a little bit of a Team Finnick. Yeah. I like yeah, Finnick. I mean, Finnick's good. I don't know. I just I feel if we're if we're specifically talking about like Katniss being with somebody, it's like yeah, I'm Team not, Joanna. That's yeah, that, I was gonna That's go my there. ideal. It was like she should just dump both of the guys and, and run off with Joanna. That I can get fine. It's funny also because I had watched the movies before reading the books, but it was long ago enough that I was I was kind of fuzzy on some of the stuff, so it was interesting to kind of see what was different between the two. And some of it is that there are characters in the books that don't exist in the movies at all, or they're kind of condensed. Well, there's the prep team, right? Yeah. Um, Octavia, Flavius, Flavius, right? One and, of those. And, and Ver- Venia? Venia? That sounds right. That sounds right. Um, and they're all kind of condensed into Effie Trinket. Yeah. And Cinna kind of. Well, Cinna's always Cinna, but Effie kind of takes on the role of like her prep, this prep There's team. like the doting capital. Yeah. 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 And then the, um, there was the the like whole mini subplot with the like the mayor's daughter. Yeah, Madge. Right? Uh, which was kind of disappointing because that added this like depth to Katniss's backstory. Yeah. I mean, we... From and like the, the situation book, of yeah. District 12. You find out so much more about District 12 and, like, life there in the books than what you see in the movies. Which, of course, is that's going to happen in a movie, because movies are going to be a certain length. Right. But it, it feels like District... Like, whereas in the books, like, you feel this, like, real attachment to District 12, it's sort of like... It never really happens in the movie. You get attached to Katniss and, and to some extent, you know, Peter and or Gale and... You know the rest of the cast of characters. The way you get attached to characters in movies, but you don't get attached to the setting the way that you can get attached to a setting. At least I didn't. I don't know about you guys. I agree with that. It, it's hard for me because I, I read the books before I saw the movies. Same. Yeah. So I have less of that ability to say, oh, I felt less attached in the movies because I came in with my attachment to the books. So okay. I, that's harder for me to say. But I will say this. I think that the way that you're introduced to this world, be it District 12 or just all of Pam or just the Hunger Games concept in general, I think is done really, really well. Um, you know, certainly just talking about like the, the writing early on, uh, Collins does a really good job of always keeping the story moving, so you're always getting new information, but you're always curious about something that's maybe two answers away, and the Katniss, the protagonist, narrates the story. Um, in kind of like a present tense narration, and Katniss does very little explaining of the world to the reader. Yeah. She'll reference things like the reaping and the games and the cornucopia before you as the reader actually get a definition of those things. And I think that it creates this really good sense of keeping progress going, and you never really feel like you have this full sense. There's always something else to discover. 
And I think maybe the fact that you kind of move away from that is part of what makes Catching Fire, the second book, maybe feel more fully realized. But as far as finding a balance between making you feel like you're getting answers and making you feel like you want to know more about the world, I think that Collins does a really good job, especially at that beginning of the first book. And even just kind of some of the other, we talked a little bit about things that we thought might have been references or inspiration, but certainly things like um, the, the short story, The Lottery, that I think a lot of people read in middle school. I don't know if that's true. I don't have like a lot of data points for that. I mean, I did. Yeah. Did you read it? No, I've never heard of this. It's, um, it's good. It's cool. It's, uh, rather than getting into the whole thing, it's very much um, the build-up to the reaping is very thematically and emotionally kind of beat-wise similar to the build-up in this, this short story, The Lottery. I think that's very intentional. I think that this is someone who knows her audience, who knows points of reference they might have. So she does a really good job of giving you these senses. She you know withholds certain information, but not other information. She knows how to do a twist really well, I think. Um, I think she knows that there's a difference between just kind of surprising you with information that you've maybe figured out by then versus, I mean, kind of like actually, let's say, twisting the knife. And usually those chapter endings aren't and then something crazy happened, it's, and then the crazy thing that happened a few pages ago suddenly got worse. And I think that that makes for a really good writing style. I, I think like overall, like obviously like it's this, it's not like McCarthy, like this isn't like just this amazing prose, but it's very well structured and it's very well paced, I think. Yeah, the pacing definitely lends itself to kind of devouring these books in quick succession. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I read the first one, and then I listened to the Audible books for um, the second two. Yeah, the narrator, after reading the first one, it's always weird to kind of jump in with um, a narrated version in the middle of something, because you're like, this is not how I pictured her reading this, (laughs) Um, but then you get used to it. But yeah, I'd say it's really, I mean, also, why literature in general is typically, if it's well written enough, easy to get through quickly, but this I found in particular was like really easy just to read all at once. We should probably just move on to uh, to the spoilers section, especially if we're talking about a whole trilogy of books. I think that's been the hardest thing, right? Like normally yeah. we have like a good sense of where the beginning falls yeah. because we just have one book to talk about. But I mean, each of these books is like four hundred pages I and mean, four hundred fast pages. But you know, still, it to try and limit ourselves, like the first say, you know, 150, 200 of the first one is yeah. Uh, yeah. pretty limiting, a little crazy. Um, with that, for our next um, our next series of shows, we actually have kind of a few announcements in addition to the one that we made earlier about adding a, a new fourth episode. Um, we're also changing our release schedule a little bit. So rather than going three episodes a month and then starting again with the next month, we're actually going to start releasing one episode every two weeks. So to go through an entire series is now going to take two months rather than one, but we're really excited because we think that we're going to be able to make this a much more, a much more consistent thing. So if you're listening, waiting for something next week it will not be there it is okay it's by design week after that you're going to find our watch episode for for this month for battle royale and then two weeks from that you're going to get danganronpa two weeks from that you're going to get our capstone episode for this entire kids killing kids series and then after that we're going to be launching into our next series that we're really excited to share with you which is going to be Raygun Gothic? Yeah, yeah. Raygun Gothic. Gothic. Term coined by William Gibson. Uh, we'll be reading a short story of his called The Gernsback Continuum? Yes. Right? Yeah, so it's a short story 
uh, that in which he kind of coined the term Raven Gothic, which basically refers to an aesthetic of basically if you think of the Jetsons, this is how I like to explain it. This kind of uh, Art Deco ish inspired thing. I can't I can't do this theme justice, even though I really was excited for it. I mean, it kind of that pretty much nails it. It's just sort of like the idea of what the future would look like in the fifties. Yeah. Um, but it's actually is the like sci-fi set in what people thought the future looked like then. So like, think of Tomorrowland and Disney World. Think of Flash Gordon. Yeah, think of Flash Gordon. Think of the Fallout series, that kind of stuff. So we're gonna be reading the Gurns back into you, and we're also going to be playing Fallout Four and watching Zathura. Very excited for all of these things. Yeah, and like this, like for this series, we're gonna be going through those, and we're gonna be capping that off with the discussion of all of them together and getting into the Raygun Gothic sort of aesthetic all as a whole. Um, we're very excited about that. I think this should be a lot of fun. Um, we're really hoping that this, we get some traction with this and this will be, this should be our format from, from here on in. So to everyone who has been with us so far, thank you for sticking around. We find our footing. We're really excited about this and I think it's, it's going to be really nice. All right, so, so into the heart of it all. So, man, this whole trilogy just ends terribly, right? Like, it's just, Day is just awful. I enjoyed the first half of it, I would say, maybe. And then it was just, it just be, whereas Catching Fire had kind of all these, like, really low points for Katniss emotionally, and I mm-hmm. felt that they were, re- I mean, they were few enough, but strong enough that I could really feel for her and really, I, I guess, even identify a little bit because you've been with her this long. Right. And then Mockingjay is just so consistent. Like, here's a horrible thing. Here's a horrible thing. And here's... It just... it's You're beaten over the head with it to the point where you're like, okay, yeah, I know, and I'm starting to not care because you're, like, assaulting me with yeah. all these horrible things that are happening. You're just desensitizing me to the plight of Katniss Everdeen. Yeah. It's like, when everyone... If everyone dies, then you kind of... Maybe it's just... A, like a defense mechanism emotionally, but you kind of shut down because you're like, okay, well, I got attached to these characters, and if we're just gonna keep killing them, I'm gonna start not to care. You're right. Because um, then, then it won't hurt. <laughs> kind of like a George R. R. Martin thing going, yeah. you know? Yeah. But I, I think that's a really good point, though, right? Like, that's that's kind of that stark contrast between Mocking Jay and Catching Fire. You know, when you have those moments where you have these characters and maybe bad things happen to them, but that's what makes that moment right before the games start in Catching Fire, where Katniss is kind of trapped in the tube and the peacekeepers come in and take Sinnoh away. And you just have her stuck there while they just beat Sinnoh to a pulp. The difference between that and just so many of the moments in Mockingjay is that the Sinnoh one is immediate. The Sinnoh one is over in three quarters of a page and it is not expected anymore. You know, it's the safety curtain has, you know, is still down at that point. But something, you know, the play has already started. It's it is on the wrong side of the games. Whereas with Mockingjay, like you said, it's it's just the whole time. You don't you don't have that sense of that real gut punch. You're just you just get it. Yeah, I didn't feel, for instance, like Finnick's death. Well, uh, Bog's death shortly followed by. Phoenix death and mocking Jay, that kind of by that point, and then we have Prim's death after that. Yeah, it's just that that trio kind of by the by the time they kill Prim, you kind of know. I feel like I had a sense from the beginning, 
that Prim wasn't going to make it because Prim was the most important person right. to Katniss. And so obviously this is, if we're going to finish breaking Katniss, that's the thing to do. This is what happens. And in a way, that's kind of, I don't know, I feel weird because it is all about how badly can we, what's the like rock bottom for Katniss. And so we're fridging all these characters just to see like how she reacts to it. And the thing is, she just keeps reacting the same way where she just gets horrible, as anyone would, yeah. gets horribly depressed and has awful PTSD. And um, then, you know, has to keep going. Yeah. And it's just, I don't know, it's weird to see all these characters killed kind of for the benefit of her kind of progression as a character. It's, I don't know, it was, it was too much. I didn't want to, I, I feel like too much death kind of ends up being pointless because it all just fades together, like blends together into this like montage of people dying and again, you kind of stop caring. Maybe I'm jaded, I don't know. No, I felt the exact same way. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's kind of hard because I think that, you know, a lot of that stuff serves kind of a dual purpose, right? Like, especially as you find out more about how Prim dies, where it seems like a lot of this is there to build Katniss's character. A lot of it there, though, is also to get to the, what I feel is, at least for me, the main point of the series. And it's the part that I like most about it, to be honest. And that it comes down to the fact that at the end of the day, the rebels in the capital are all all the same and they're they're two sides of the same coin and i think that that's i mean that feels to me like why that the character president coin is named that and you have those things and that it seems like the the point that the series at least to me seems that it's trying to get to is that war is bad there are no good guys there are no bad guys everyone like if you are taking part you are taking part and there's nothing you can do about that no matter how righteous your cause and, you know, I think in a lot of ways this sort of culminates when they, they have that big vote about, like, oh, are they going to do a last Hunger Games with children from the Capitol? Right. And you have these people, and Katniss has been saying the whole time, and I think that it's one of the ways that this theme builds really nicely, where Katniss has this sense of PETA being sort of the best of them, in that, you know, PETA's the guy who does not want to kill people. He doesn't have that instinct. He thinks about other people. He would try and talk something out first. Whereas Katniss has this sense that she's the kind of person who fights first and talks second. And you see that coming up a lot of times. You have Katniss explicitly thinking about this a lot of times. And you really, you have that, this person whose instinct is peace is kind of that quote-unquote better person. He's pure somehow in a way that Katniss feels she is not. Even though you might agree with her intentions, even though she agrees with her intentions, she has this sense that the fact that I'm someone who jumps to shooting people makes me somehow this like tainted person and it feels to me like that's the core theme of the series that no matter what your involvement in war you are involved and right. that makes you a certain way and maybe that's good maybe that's bad maybe that's important but whatever it is you can't be that pure person and be involved in that and i think that it's a good message and i think it's a message well delivered agree with it or not however that is i think that the, the objective thing that you can take from this is that it's a well-delivered, well-seated, and you, you get to her argument in a very compelling way. The downside of that is that it means these books that started with what feels very unique, again, obviously, Battle Royale, um, concept, degenerate into just kind of another dumb war story, yeah. which was, for me, the big disappointment. You kind of go from one issue to the other with at the ends of book, at, with 
books two and three, right? Book two kind of has the Halo problem, where, you know, spoilers for Halo, there's another Halo. And that's not a great <laughs> plot point. So when you get to Catching Fire and the twist is Katniss is in the Hunger Games again, like, yeah, you see how that sucks for the character, but from a narrative standpoint, you're like, oh, well, duh. okay, I guess. And then you kind of take the total 180 where you just go and you drop all of those things that made these other books kind of interesting and you're just a, kind of another war story. Mm-hmm. And that for me was what was disappointing. And I, I don't like to get super into like, this is how I would have written it, but the big thing that I was really excited for with Catching Fire was I thought for sure that the plot was going to be Katniss and Peeta come out of the Hunger Games, this situation where Peeta's kind of you know, arguably dead weight, and Katniss is really in her element. And now next year, they have to mentor the next set of tributes, a situation where Peeta is really in his element, and Katniss is just terrible at it. Right. And the thing that I really liked about that is, and this is my biggest issue with the first Hunger Games book, at no point do I feel like Katniss is not going to survive the Hunger Games. Yeah. It's clear. Even yeah. if you don't know that there are books following Collins does a lot to make you think that maybe that'll, but it, it never quite clicks, right? You never feel like Katniss isn't going to win. So if you have the situation where Katniss is a mentor and her tribute can die, suddenly the Hunger Games become a lot more interesting from a narrative perspective. Yeah. And then instead, you get another Hunger Games, and you're like, oh, so Katniss gets out of this. I immediately lose interest. Right. So that was the big thing that it comes down to for me, is that... Now, given once you finish the series and you see the points that it feels like Collins is trying to embed in there, I don't know how you get that from the trajectory that I imagined when I was going from Hunger Games into Catching Fire. Right. And I totally respect that, and if that's that's what she wanted, that's what she did, but that was always my biggest frustration, is that I really want to read that book. And that's the point where I say the narrative, it you get message over narrative and I really stop caring about the narrative, even though I really get invested in the message at that point. I would have loved to read a book where, men- where Katniss and Peeta have to mentor tributes. This just could have been a four-book series. Like, for real, how great Right? The first book, and then the, uh, the second book is that book, and then the third book is everybody gets called back. And, like, literally, it wouldn't have to... Beat for beat could be the same thing, and there would just be more deterioration of capital versus district, like, relations from book one to book now three. Right? And Catching Fire just would have been the third book with Mockingjay finishing the series. Damn it, James. I think it could have worked. I was content enough. <laughs> but, so, I think that that's the hard thing, right? Because I really do love thematically where the series goes. I think that that's really good. I think it's an interesting point, and I think it's a point well made, and you can fall wherever you fall on it. But I think that she does a good job of getting there. This is something, I should, this is something I'll bring up more in the Battle Royale episode, but one thing I thought, again, that I liked about Catching Fire that we didn't really have so much in Hunger Games was that these tributes all knew each other. Going and I think that that creates a really interesting dynamic when everyone going in to kill each other knows each other beforehand. Specifically, Catching Fire. Yeah, specifically in Catching Fire. Whereas in Hunger Games, like the, you only know the other tribute from your district, and even then, like we don't maybe know. Maybe not. Maybe yeah. not. We just Peta and Katniss, and that's something that in Battle Royale is that is a class of people who are thrown in together. So that was. The one thing that I kind of wish there was more of in the Hunger Games, I got in Catching Fire, which again contributes to that being my favorite out of all three of the books. Because you also are introduced to this, this is a difficult thing when you have a trilogy or any kind of high A series where you're trying to introduce new characters. 
after the first book because sometimes that can be just like oh i don't know what to do now to make this more interesting let me just like add more people whereas this felt very like natural these, right. these additional characters put in and some of the most loved characters in the whole trilogy only show up in the second book for the first time yeah i agree with that um i i think that a lot of those secondary like the the previous victors become a lot more interesting than the tributes i think that that narratively makes sense which is really kind of cool i think you're absolutely right that the pitfall that a lot of books like that fall into is particularly when they try and make the argument of oh now here's someone who's been there the whole time and here's some like not very good reason why you've never heard of them before but with just the whole process that the tributes go through there is no opportunity for them to encounter previous victors etc it's, I think that it's a really well-structured thing, and you're right, that a lot of just those characters, a lot of characters come into Catching Fire more fleshed out than some characters who get carried over from The Hunger Games. It does do a really good job making the whole thing feel much more whole. Yeah, and also, because in Hunger Games, you know pretty much everyone there is going to die, right? Whereas by the second one, you're like, okay, we've already done this before. We're getting, I mean, some of these characters are being very well developed, so it's hard to imagine they're just going to be tossed aside like the way that the other tributes were in the first book. So you feel a little safer getting attached, even if you know they're probably going to, you know, die eventually at the end. Because apparently everybody does. But like, how and why have the stakes changed in the second Hunger Games is why Catching Fire ends up being so interesting, right? Yeah. Because it's not, it's not just about who's playing, but it's about who's going to survive because the path things are taking is, like, wildly different from the path that they took previously. It's also nice to see Kat is a little bit out of her element, because, like, with the first Hunger Games, she was totally, like, that was a kind of a forest that she recognized, basically. It was, yeah. the trees were the same, everything was the same, whereas the jungle terrain, the water jungle terrain, and then it was, like, that weird clock format, right? That was something I had a little bit, maybe I wasn't paying attention. Yeah, the the clock format for the, so for the, the 75th Hunger Games in Catching Fire, the arena is split into 12 units with a kind of, it seems like a deep pool of water at the center. Um, And each of those, so there's this deep pool of water, then there's a beach around that, and then around that is jungle. And all of this is split into 12 segments, and over the course of a day, each one of those segments for one hour each has some kind of really like terrible, deadly thing going on. Right. As opposed to the previous one, where it seemed like the game makers could just do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. Yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, with this one, you've got, it's like from, it's like what, from 12 to 1, there's like a lightning storm in one of them. From 1 to 2, it like rains blood. From 2 to 3, there's some kind of like neurotoxin, like some kind of poisonous fog. So like, realistically, how dangerous is rain blood? I think it's more unpleasant. <laughs> like, it, it's awful. Yeah. And, like, I'm really curious as to how they managed to make that happen. But <laughs> it's, like, realistically, it's, like, okay, if I need to find some cover or if, like, I'm going to get covered, like, if I need to, like, wade through this and then go for a swim, so be it. But, like, versus like, the neurotoxin gas versus the lightning storm versus... Yeah. It seems like the, the raining blood falls more with, like, what was, like, the, the Jabberjays? Yeah. Where it's just, like... Emotionally yeah. traumatic. Yeah. But yeah, no, I agree. It, when the other things are like a fog that makes you just like even like before like they started just dying, they were like breaking out in like terrible blisters and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, yeah it was just like awful. Fog is obviously the worst. Yeah. Degradation of just like human life. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, that's the thing. It's like with how bad everything else is, yeah. it's like I feel like even the what should be emotional trauma of being like rained, like having blood rain on me, it's just yeah. like, all right, I guess this is actually kind of nice <laughs> hang out yeah. here. compared to everything else. There's so much description of pus in these books. Huge amount of pus description. Like, Peter's leg in the first one. Yeah. It's just all his pus. And then this, when they get all the boils and blisters from the fog, and, like, Finnick is, like, on its face in the sand, and everyone else is just covered in pussy things. It's just... It's, it's really quite gory for books that are aimed at teenagers. I mean, not that... I mean, when I was a teenager, I read a bunch of creepy, gory stuff, too, sure. but it wasn't necessarily targeted specifically for teenagers, I guess. I think that's the big difference. That's that's the thing that I keep like trying to think of with stuff. Like, people talk about like, oh, these are like written for teens. They've got these things, and I'm like, I read worse than this when I was a teenager. But I guess yeah, it is. But the things that you read things. weren't written for teenagers. Yeah, I was right. reading like people weren't. I wasn't like I was saying. Like I read, I read Orwell, but Orwell may or may not have imagined a seventh grader reading stuff. Right? Yeah. But maybe that maybe that would be the argument is people are just saying it's like no, just because you're 14 doesn't mean you're not going to go out and find Carrie. Yeah, the fact that this is marketed to teenagers. Yeah. It's all about teenagers. Because, I, mean, I mean, I guess it's actually safe to say the demographic is around the demographic of who the tributes would be, 12 to 18? Yeah. 12 to 17? 12 to 17. 12 to 18. 18. Is it 12 or 14? Okay. Well, it's not. It's definitely 12. It's 12 because Rue is 12. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and Prim gets picked in, in the first yeah, I think she's 12. Good call. I remember Fennec, they mentioned one at 14, and I know that they make the point that that was very young to win, but I couldn't remember if that was the youngest age that you could be. But yeah, no, you're totally right, 12. Yeah. I'd love to see a 12 year old in the Hunger Games. Just by like, I don't, and it's interesting because if the game makers just left them all alone to see, like, without like throwing their fireballs or like doing any of their like crazy tricks to try to drive everyone together right. to kill each other violently with weapons, as opposed to like, oh, who can survive in the wilderness the longest? Yeah. The games might get pretty boring. Yeah. It's very... So if I lived in the capital, I'd be mad. Yeah. One thing... Okay, so here's one issue that I hadn't really thought of myself, but it was brought up by one of my friends, and that ever since she mentioned this, I can't stop thinking about it this way, is that it's kind of the way that the capital... Like, the capital is unquestionably evil. And they're portrayed as being, like, very flamboyant, very, like, brightly colored with crazy makeup and stuff. And as she said it, she said, like, why is it that the capital, the evil capital, seems to be a, like, like the embodiment of queerness and like what mm. like it's the idea of decadence and kind of this greed and I mean they talk about things like at the feast they will eat until they're full and then they'll go throw up so they can eat more while people are starving elsewhere right. and it's kind of like they're also like men are wearing lipstick and they have crazy hair and like people are very they want to dress in a way that I guess a lot of drag queens typically dress for shows. And it does, ever since she said that, I kind of feel like it is a little bit weird. Why is it that the evil people are... I mean, not that... I mean, coin also is the you know the opposite, or again, the other side of the coin. And they're kind of... They all dress in the same outfits, same gray outfits every day. And they're not supposed to be... They're also kind of the bad guys, right? Right, there's a lot of moral ambiguity. Yeah. And I think, I guess, one qualification is I didn't necessarily got the impression that the capital as a whole was evil. Like, it, there's a few points where I think that, you know, characters will make a good point where it's like, well, I was raised in the capital, who knows, like, what I would be like. Yeah. But it, it seems like, I guess, the capital is evil in the sense of, like, the government that allows that to happen. Is evil. Yeah. Right. And that the people of it are just... Really evil. privileged. Yeah. 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 It, it makes me wonder if the idea was really more to just go for someone who's just, like, extremely superficial is kind of the wrong word. It's, it's really unfortunate, though, that you're right. It does... 
it seems like the parallels are there. I can't imagine they're intended because there's nothing else that like would indicate. Yeah, that indicates that. But it. I mean, it I almost that it's there. Wonder if if that story of how she came to this idea, right, with the the mashup of reality show culture versus like the news cycle. If just like her interpretation of what she could distill reality show culture down to is like what the capital is, I could definitely see that kind of making some sense. But yeah, I guess that's that's a good point to bring up. That it's not really an angle that I considered before. I it feels like it's not intended to be that, but it's hard to it's hard to deny that like once it's kind of pointed out that it's there. It would have been nice if there was something else to actively dissuade it. But because Cinna is also portrayed as like oh he came in and he only had, he has like minimal makeup. He's only wearing like a little bit of like gold eyeliner and he's the good guy out of the Capitol, right? Right. Um, whereas everybody else is like crazy blue hair and. I don't know. If it sounds like fun. I don't know. Like I don't. <laughs> I would like to go to a party where everyone dressed like people from the Capitol. Sure. I mean, I guess I guess you could argue that like Effie is a pretty good person and maintains her her Capitol like style appearance and and like proclivities up until she's forced to to lose them in uh, in the third book. And even then, she kind of like goes a little crazy because she can't be the way she wants to be. It makes me wonder if the idea is more that. Um, it's not that doing that is bad, it's that if that's the extent of your cares and interests and worldviews, that that's limiting when there are people who are literally starving to death. Right. Um, I guess it's it's like an analysis of excess Yeah. in every possible way. Yeah. But portrayed in a way that does line up with certain cultures and groups. Yeah. It's still just a little off-putting now that I have the idea in my head. Yeah, it was something I didn't think of it originally. It was my friend from grad school who brought it up, and then ever since she said it, I can't like stop thinking about it when I read about or see capital people. That's fair. I think I think for me it comes down to there's there's nothing else to indicate that that was an intended parallel. Yeah, which I think counts for a certain amount, but especially yeah. given just how how much she flushes out every intentional message in the book. Yeah, which is, that's the big thing for me, is that, and it's the same thing why, like, the climate change one feels kind of weird, where it's like, oh, this is just kind of this weird little thing that sort of sneaks in at the end. It's like a throwaway line. Yeah, exactly, whereas I feel like you don't start getting throwaway lines until Mockingjay. I feel like it's almost, she felt a need to connect Pan Am as much as possible to, like, the real America, and so she worked in something like that to create this, like, realistic scenario where we would go from where we are today to where they are in the Hunger Games. Yeah. And it's hard to speculate as to, like, what the actual reason was, but yeah. That is what it comes across as, and it comes across as this this attempt to add something where you didn't really need it. We were on board. Like, I was on board. I got it. I didn't need to know. I didn't, like, I don't need to know why, like, the zombie apocalypse happens in one day. Right. It just happened. Yeah. The more you try to explain the midichlorians, the, the more you try to explain the force the less interested I am in it. Just, I'm, I'm on board. Yeah, don't worry. It's cool. What are midichlorians? You're good. Yeah, exactly. We didn't watch that one. Your guys' final thoughts on the trilogy as a whole? We're all... I mean, I guess what we should talk about before we really get into final thoughts is the actual ending, right? Yeah, fair. So, they get in there and they're ready for their ritual execution and Snow's looking menacing and growling and saying some the very President Snow type things to Katniss and then she takes a bow and she shoots coin. Well, because the coin is actually the one she suspects that, or she pretty much knows, I guess, by then, orchestrated Prim's death and all those kids' deaths. Right. That And that that info, I think, is confirmed by Snow. Because he, right? she remembers him saying to her, 
um, I would like let's never lie to each other or something. Like let's be honest. Right. Yeah. Let's stop telling lies to each yeah. other. Yeah. And he he said to her he was like I he's like I didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> but I was like why would I do? And like, he's taking credit for doing a bunch of other shitty it's things. Like, it's so. like yeah I've done a lot of horrible stuff but I wouldn't just kill a bunch of kids like that or well I probably would. He did. I did kill a bunch of kids. Exactly. It's like I do that every year, <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't do not that. this one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's yeah it's a pretty reasonable belief that. That is, in fact, what happens. And I think a big thing, a big part of it is the bombs that were used, because the bombs were bombs that were designed by uh, BT and Gale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and really it's like that. that connecting Gale to it. Yeah. I thought that was a good element. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, arguably, from a personal standpoint, she kills Coin because Coin killed her sister. And she did it just to manipulate people and to manipulate Katniss. But, like, do you think that... I, I personally think that for Katniss, that's reason enough for her to do what she did. Um, but do you do you guys think there's more to it, right? The whole idea that that coin wouldn't be any better than snow, which is what a lot of people see and think. It's like, yeah. Did she think that? If she did, did it even matter? I thought that she did, but I think that at that point, everything is so personal to her that Prim's death is really like right. Because throughout the whole thing, and you can argue that she's actually been somewhat selfish throughout. Oh yeah. You know, because she like. Other people, people all around her are dying in all the districts, right? And she's just like, I can't function without PETA. And so they, like, stop everything to go get PETA for her so that she can function. And they get Annie so that Finnick can, like, stop tying knots. (laughs) I do love Finnick, though. (laughs) And it's not tying. But, yeah, at that point, I thought that maybe... I did think that she probably had that thought, but that was not her main motivation in doing it. Right. I guess... Same way with Mary's, right? Like, she wasn't thinking, like, I'm going to start a revolution now, but then later on she's like, I'm going to kind of pretend that that was what I was doing on purpose. I guess the better way to phrase the question would be more so, like, if everything had happened the way it had, but uh, Coin hadn't decided to stage that attack to try to manipulate everybody, but everything else happened the way it was, and she didn't need to do that to make things end the way they did and to win the, like, rebellion, would she have killed her? Would she have seen everything that we had seen and, and... processed it the same way and saw that that coin was just as bad and like decided to take her out i would hope not um just for the sake of katniss's character i think at least for me an important part of katniss's character is like what you were saying is that katniss is selfish um i don't hold that against her i don't think that makes her a bad person or a bad character it's certainly been the thing that has gotten her this far yeah um but selfish it's selfish in the way that she puts she volunteers effectively to kill herself to save Prim, you know, which is a very selfless thing to do, but also selfish in the sense that she would have done that for Prim and nobody else. You know, she has she has her values and she sticks to that. And if you are not in that core group, then you're you're out. You're not. You don't matter. So it's the kind of thing where if I would hope not, because that would be like a betrayal character for me, that Katniss isn't idealistic. Katniss is practical. Katniss's view of District 11 is Thresh and Rue's families. Right. Um, you know, and those are the things that matter, not the other people. Like, even then, like, it's less the old guy who gets shot after he, like, starts inciting rebellion in the crowd. Mm-hmm. It's the faces of the families. So, in that kind of weird way, I would hope not. I think that, I think that we as the reader are intended to see that the real reason that Coin is bad is because she's just as bad as Snow, and we've seen that up until now. But Katniss doesn't care. Right. You know? If if not for Prim's death, she would just want to be able to go back to some semblance of home. Yeah. 
with her family and with whichever of these boys she settles down with. And, yeah. And, and live whatever life she can live under the new regime. Exactly. You know, and Katniss blames Snow, really, at the end of it, for reaping prey. You know, at the end of the day, it comes down to that. You know, that first inciting moment in the books, that's why she starts caring. Yeah. And so when Coin does even worse, and actually, you know, Snow at least gave Katniss the chance to step in, Coin does not. And that is inexcusable, is my like reading of Katniss in that in that situation. So I would hope not. I think that we as the reader are meant to see the, the idealistic element of it, but Katniss does not. Katniss doesn't care. I agree. Jumping on, though, to your point, Justin, going back and settling down with whichever of these boys she settles down with, to come back to the real Hungry Games story, am I right? We got all these you know, kids coming kid stuff. What really matters is this like awkward, occasional love triangle. <laughs> right. I think they're both whiny babies. Yeah, I'm just Team Katniss. Yeah. I like that. I like Team Katniss because I, I specifically avoided saying this earlier, but my my ideal outcome there is neither of them. That she just goes home and like maybe has some kind of a relationship. It doesn't have to be romantic. Like She can understand. But I definitely imagine Katniss's response to all of that being just closing off. Like doing all the things that she blamed her mom for at the beginning. Yeah. You know, and having that happen to her and just she's done and maybe she gets better but not in that way and she comes back to the like i i don't have those feelings for people also the idea of that like that the epilogue just had to have her having kids like you're not a complete you haven't come full circle as a person once you've had kids like because yep. she's all throughout the thing she's like i don't want to and given the world has changed since the time when she was saying i don't want to have kids and i don't want to bring them into this horrible world right yeah so it's mildly less horrible yeah, yeah. so arguably for her the the big thing that was stopping that has has changed now. But yeah, I I, I agree with, I, I don't mean to kind of follow your thought, but I, I think that with the point that I think that you were about to make, which I should let you actually make, I think that I agree with where you're going. <laughs> where do you think I was going? I think that you're going with it's awkward that it feels like this happy ending and like her life is good now as she has kids, which is a really a weird trope that comes in in a lot of things. Yes. Yeah. I just think it's weird that every epilogue where people have the characters have to grow up by the end ends with they got married and they have kids like it's like that old-fashioned fairy tale ending right and they lived happily ever after because they got married to the right person and had kids and that's just like it's weird to me that that feels like a requirement for authors to put that in there especially in dystopian like sci-fi it's like fuck the happy ending is that they won the rebellion like given everything that's going on i mean it's a bittersweet ending i guess in a lot of ways but Coin's gone, Snow's gone, the the world is a better place, Katniss can can go hunt to her heart's content. And like that that should be all that matters. Yeah. Like yeah. it shouldn't require that she get married and have kids yeah. for the ending to be yeah. happy. Yeah. I completely agree with that. It feels weird, it feels I don't want to say lazy because it's not what I'm getting at, but it feels easy. Yeah. You know? It's a safe kind of epilogue. Yeah. It's same with Harry Potter. Yeah, exactly. It's it's all the same reasons why like but even then, the big difference is that like Harry Potter is inherently like a happy series. Yeah. So when you have that and people kind of pair off and you say, oh, you get that kind of closure or whatever, like we had that kind of closure. I didn't need Katniss and Pete to have like two kids. Like, a boy and a girl. Yeah. Just, just don't care. Yeah. Like everything that's interesting about this series are the parts that aren't that right. like, stereotypical every yeah. time story. And then to end on a note that is so that is just like, oh, okay, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and it, oh god, it's everywhere. Every fucking story. 
ends with pairing off and having kids because that's all that life is really about right we get to the you're not happy you're not complete unless that happens then we get the Peta Katniss divorce sequel trilogy right yeah I mean that sounds fun yeah. and inevitable <laughs> um so yeah I, I guess the consensus here is trilogy good uh, yeah. yeah, worth Susan reading. Sure. does some some interesting things, and and definitely has a message to to send that she sends well. Fumbles in the third act, a little too like directly emotionally manipulative, and is just kind of off. And the ending isn't ultimately all that satisfying, but on the whole, the, isn't it good? Like I'll I'll come out and yeah, say that the ending is mean, good. It's not good. Uh, but the trilogy is something that is worth reading and. I, yeah, I think when people look back to like this decade and like what was really big in literature, this is gonna be one of those huge things that will just stand out for a really long time. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I think that this, however it goes, will be an important cultural touchstone for for a lot of things. All right. All right. So if you enjoyed this episode and uh, and join us next time for the uh, clear, you're gonna have to say it. Gernsbeck continuum. William Gibson story. William's double check. That's Gernsbeck. Yep, the Gerd's back continuum. And before that, in two weeks, Battle Royale. Yeah. Which you're gonna, if you like Hunger Games... You are gonna <laughs> love this. If you've not seen Battle Royale and you have read Hunger Games, and you don't want to see Battle Royale, you will you will be interested in this episode. Yes. I guarantee you will come back to Hunger Games. It'll be Hunger Games Part 2. Yeah, for sure. Yep. So, uh, until next time. Thank you so much.